Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. Hope you had a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, or anything else that you may or may not have celebrated. This conversation is with Henry Reardon. You may recognize that name from Atlas Shrugged. Yes, it is a pseudonym. You can follow Henry on Twitter at Integrity for Markets. Markets is MKTS. Henry joined this pod to talk about his Carvana short. Then we went into a little bit of his philosophy on how he invests on the long side. I enjoyed talking to him a lot. I think he's uh, an interesting contrarian type investor and somebody that everyone can learn something from. This episode is sponsored by Stratosphere.io. Stratosphere is a modern financial platform. Some might call it a terminal. I'm going to tell you it's a great website that has high quality data. They triple check their data. I like how they have customizable layouts. You can change things from quarterly to annual percentage, dollar. I mean, a lot of this stuff is if I were drafting up a financial research tool in 2022, how would I do it? My man Braden over there has figured it out and I like the product a lot. You can sign up at stratosphere.io for uh, the free product. Should you want more years of financial information or KPIs or some of the more premium features that they offer, sign up for that using the promo code BREW, B-R-E-W, for a 15% off discount. I will uh, note that should you not see a KPI, ping the team, they are incredibly responsive, they update things quickly, and they are looking to iterate to make the product as good as possible. I really uh, I like them, and I like the product, and I'm happy that they're a sponsor. So again, that's stratosphere.io, S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E.io. And as always, none of this is investing advice. This is for entertainment purposes only. You should do your own due diligence and uh, enjoy the show. All right. Have a good one. So ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to be joined by Henry Reardon, also known as Integrity for Markets. How do you spell markets? MKTS, right? On Twitter? I believe that's correct. I should know that. MKTS, that is correct. There you go. So uh, I followed you for a little while, and I think you reached out to me after the Cohotis interview. Maybe not. I know that you worked with Mark on... Um, vetting the Carvana short idea that you had and, you know, kudos on great work. And uh, well, I wanted to have you on the podcast because I've listened to your podcast with Brandon Below, and I noticed that you're uh, very comfortable to be contrarian and you're very comfortable to be concentrated and you're comfortable to swim against the tide. And I think that those are all traits that one needs to be a really great investor. So thank you for saying yes. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. No, I appreciate you having me on here and, you know, giving me the opportunity to present a case of why not all short sellers are evil and the scourge of capital markets. And, you know, most of us aren't short sellers all the time. Most of us kind of just tend to try to understand how the world and how people works and, to your point, are comfortable being contrarian or at least thinking independently at a bare minimum. And, you know, when the facts line up on the long or the short side, going with the conviction or following the numbers or the money. But as we'll discuss, it's much different. Buying a stock is not the same as shorting one. And they are very different skill sets, which is why I had reached out to Mark. And uh, he's been incredible kind of helping me through the last year or two. There's a lot of people that listen that know exactly what you're saying, and there's some people that listen that don't. So would you mind discussing a little bit of the different skill sets that go into shorting versus being long? For sure. So at the end of the day, everything is fact-based. It doesn't matter kind of what you think you might know or really understanding the economics of a business is how you can build an investment thesis. And so... For me, everybody does it differently. You know, how I talk about, how a distressed investor talks about, how a value guy talks about, and how Kathy Wood talks about investing is very different. And so for someone like me, if I'm going to buy a stream of cash flows or a stream of earnings, 
I really want to know what are the drivers, how sensitive is it, and then if I'm wrong, what kind of asset value might be there to protect me on the downside. And so you might look at a retailer that Amazon is disrupting or that is having some inventory issues and is seeing margins compress, sales go away, and you say, okay, I can roughly model a scenario, an economic scenario where it can be a little bit bad, it can be really bad, it can be worse. And then you say, okay, well, what are the assets? You know, do they own any real estate? How much flexibility is there with the balance sheet? So you're always sort of trying to build different scenarios and understand what your downside might be when you're buying, you know, a stock, a bond, an option, anything. On the short side, it's a little bit tougher because you're doing the same work and analysis to try to say fundamentally what is something worth. But when you have an environment where something, a story can trade at tens of billions of dollars or cryptocurrencies can go from zero to a three trillion dollar asset class, you just have to be careful and humble. And, you know, we've seen a number of instances where people might have thought that Tesla was a car maker and they weren't going to scale and the accounting was aggressive, and then it went up 20x. Or people that thought that AMC or GameStop were, were dying retailers, and they also reached meme status. And if you thought you knew better or that fundamentals mattered, you would have been carried out. So there's great value investors that say that buying a stock is an act of real arrogance, implying that you know more than the market or the other side of the trade. And to do that, it has to be met with equal amounts of humility. And so on the short side, it's just, it's much more dangerous, especially when liquidity and momentum drive things more than fundamentals, which is the environment we were in. So, you know, you have to size it, use options, to hedge if you can, which is kind of how I had sort of done it, or use derivative strategies to be a little bit more careful than just, I like Apple, I like Meta, I like oil and gas producer X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to buy and hold and don't think about it as much. Yeah, the other thing that's tough is, and what prevents me, part of what prevents me, the other thing is I don't, I don't know that I want to put in all the work to be a short seller, but as it goes against you, the position gets bigger. That's exactly right. So it's a portfolio management perspective. It's, it's more complicated, in my opinion. Absolutely. And, you know, you sort of assume it's kind of similar. You know, you assume that any position, at least I do, anytime I buy a stock, it tends to go down. So, you know, I've often joked that maybe I should launch a uh, Costanza fund as a partner to my original, <laughs> that every time I come up with a buy decision, I will immediately short the stock for at least the first 10 to 15, 20%. And I'm sure other guys feel the same way. It's just the way that markets work because there's so much psychology involved with it. Well, so if you assume that anything can move 20 to 35 plus-ish percent against you or the wrong way, well, you know, those shorts tend to be, one, a little bit more or much more, and they happen fast. They are vicious because usually, you know, you're not alone in seeing some, some odd accounting or some irregularities. And so you have to be mindful of the short interest. You have to be mindful that the promoters of these companies don't tend to throw up their hands and say, you got me. I was having some fun here, but you got me. No. So, you know, they like to do things that make it very uncomfortable and difficult. So absolutely. You know, it's I like to say that my investing style is more art than science. And, you know, when you're shorting, you're watching it night and day. If you don't know more about it and how it trades and the flows and are prepared to kind of step out of the way when you need to, then it can be career ending, I guess. Yeah. You know, the thing that was wild about Carvana is I'm just an observer, right? But I had talked to some people and I think we're allowed, well, we are allowed to say like the founder or the father is a convicted felon. And a couple of guys that I know were just like, I don't understand how people see what they see in this. 
But at the same time, the stock just kept going higher and higher and higher. You were the one that was really public about it. And I'm just kind of curious when it all clicked and then how you thought about putting on the position and then managing against, I mean, I don't know when you put it on, but I assume the stock went against you a little bit, just kind of how you managed through that. And then when you felt like it was time to press the bet. Yeah. So I'll walk you through kind of the genesis of the thesis in my time with it. So from working at a prior firm, I was pretty familiar with subprime lenders, companies that originated loans mostly to subprime customers and securitized those assets and relied on the ABS market to do so. And I had built up kind of models and valuations from the securitization trust level up. And as you know, an opportunistic value-oriented investor that tends to go where there's sectors, securities, or asset classes that are out of favor, where there's blood in the water. I was also pretty familiar with retail, whether it was auto retail, which is an industry, and there's a few businesses in that sector that I love, or brick and mortar retail, which were all being kind of, at least the narrative was, they were being disrupted by Amazon originally, and then by a bunch of other players, Carvana, which was the false narrative there was that this was the Amazon of used cars subsequently. So, you know, I followed it from the time of the IPO in 2017, 2018. I actually kind of wasn't watching the markets as closely because I had left the former fund I was with and was busy setting up my own. And then in 2019 is when I launched my fund and I started watching it closer and was the first time that I shorted Carvana. It was a combination of synthetic short, which is kind of risk reversal options type strategy and just outright. Yeah, you're long the put and short the call, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, or just outright short the equity. And we'll speak about it, but you have to be really careful with those synthetics because when something can go from, I think, 25 which is where it bottomed in the COVID kind of crash. And my fund was covering that way down. So I think it bottomed at 25 in March of 2020 and then went to 350 at its peak in mid-2021. You can get offside real fast on those risk reversals. And if the options market isn't as liquid, fortunately in this one it was, it can be bad. So the position started in 2019 was covered in 2020 when kind of markets went down. And Carvana, importantly, it was always a negative economic business model. It was always a very cash flow, capital intensive, cash flow rather consumptive and negative business. So they were losing money on every car and growing and growing their infrastructure to try to achieve the operating leverage they said or promised would always be there. So as the company was growing, it was consuming more and more cash and unprofitable. So when the COVID kind of happened and capital markets shut down, this would have gone to zero. This would have been one of the casualties of credit markets seizing up, of financial markets seizing up, but that didn't last too long. The central banks and governments got out there bazookas and monetary weapons of mass destruction. And we flushed the system with liquidity and everything was back. And I think, you know, in the wake of that, we had one of the biggest speculative manias in modern financial history. And we're now in the process of kind of normalizing and realizing that 17 trillion of negative yielding debt was probably not, not a sustainable thing. So in 2021, I was following it and short and definitely short too early. I remember, I think it was Q2 21, they pre-announced that they were expecting to be positive EBITDA, which is D-U-H in the Carvana case, because it is a very massaged, non-economic. If the Buffets and Munger say EBITDA is kind of bullshit earnings, this is uh, set on steroids. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. It's a bad number. You know, it was sort of like the. It was much worse than the Valiant EBITDA, which was, which was not representative of economic earnings at all. What made it so bad? 
Well, so first and foremost, you wouldn't use EBITDA for JP Morgan or for cons or for one main financial or Santander. When you require your balance sheet to generate the earnings that you do, EBITDA is kind of a meaningless number. I think I mentioned I was following Carvana for years. So originally it was just sort of a curiosity why a mostly subprime lender, why a financial company would present itself as disruptive automotive retailer versus, you know, really what it was. And so I assumed it was just the multiple arbitrage. You trade at a higher valuation, you raise the equity, you grow faster, and then you can maybe become the Amazon of used cars or the Amazon of kind of payday loans or subprime auto loans, whatever it might be. But the company was never raising the equity that they should have. So, so there were some big red flags there. But so one, EBITDA for a financial company is not the right metric. It doesn't in any way represent kind of the business activity, what your claims to, to the earnings are as an equity owner, as a shareholder as well. And then we're not going to get into it here because everyone's eyes will glaze over. But Ernie Garcia, the real Ernie Garcia, the convicted felon, is a brilliant financial accountant, economic financial engineer, corporate structure. And so he was using the ugly duckling accounting kind of shenanigans playbook, which relies heavily on gain on sale accounting. So ugly duckling was the first company that he took public, right? And the gain on sale basically means that you're selling your loans and then you're booking the gain right up front, right? And in a, in a interest rate environment that goes down at the time, like perpetually, and rates are negative, you could recognize some gains pretty quickly, and they could be maybe outsized gains. Is that like fair? That's fair. So the best you could say about gain on sale accounting is that it's a snapshot, it's a point in time, and then it does lend itself to some massaging, and it does require people to think about what that earnings stream might look like over the course of an economic cycle, if people can think that long. And, you know, historically, these things have tended to reverse or go the other way. So gain on sale has become loss on sale for the guys that are more aggressive in terms of how they book it. Now, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, CarMax has the same retail credit hybrid model, and they have guys that they sell the loans to at a premium. There's other ones where it's kind of at face and other ones they take a bit of a hit. But that's kind of the, the model. But to your point, if you have a capital intensive build out and then you are generating a lot of economics through gain on sale, that sounds very, very dependent on capital markets being accommodative. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, that's what Ugly Duckling was. So, I mean, in, in the mid to late 90s, it was a darling. Things only went up one way. By the early 2000s, the tide had gone the other way. And Ugly Duckling was down 90%. And Ernie Garcia Sr. bought it for five cents on the dollar relative to its highs, took it private, rebranded it as Drive Time, and then spent, I guess, the be better part of the next 15 years really growing Drive Time, which is a buy here, pay here, sort of subprime car retailer lender into, into a pretty big organization. You've had the background following subprime in your past and just whether or not what you saw at Carvana was substantially different from things that you had seen elsewhere. It must have been to a certain extent. Well, I mean, yes and no. So I actually really like the subprime business. And over the years, I have owned one main financial, Santander Consumer, Cons, which is a retail credit hybrid model. I've also been short kind of some of those names at other times, depending on sort of where they're valued, because when you understand how they're lending, you know, you can look at what the tangible book value might be, what the returns they're generating, how they're provisioning for losses. And so, you know, subprime is shades of gray. And if you manage your business well, and I think the guys at one main, you know, we can say that we're going through a tougher economic period for the subprime consumer, the subprime guy. But if you manage your business well, and I think the guys at One Main do, which is the former Springleaf or City kind of subprime, then 
they can be great. They're very high return on equity, return on capital businesses, but you really have to pay attention to that. So when it started with Carvana, I said, okay, well, it's not a tech company. This isn't Amazon. This should be some sort of multiple, you know, whether like an affirm or an upstart, you say, okay, this is a financial, this isn't a tech company. What had an, an added layer was the Garcia senior kind of angle to it and the way that I think he purposefully structured Carvana to be a bankruptcy remote subsidiary of his company, Drive Time, and really capitalized it for the outcome that we're seeing now here today. And so, you know, for me, sort of as you mentioned at the beginning of the call here, it's all about asymmetry and it's all about, you know, what if I'm wrong? And so, I figured if I was wrong and this was really more like, you know, a financial or an auto retailer, I knew how that should be valued and where they might get to and what the economics would look like. And as I was saying, kind of as early as probably mid 2001, 2021, late 2021, my base case for this business, for this equity was zero. And I realize how insane that probably sounds when at the time it was trading at a north of 60 billion with a B equity valuation. But if you removed kind of that stock price or didn't look at it and just read the financials, I think many people might come to a similar conclusion and then kind of going through the related party transactions, coming up with that variant perception help develop that thesis as well. One of the the narratives that I think took hold was like, look at the unit economics on a business like this. I mean, you've been around markets for a while. Do you think that when there is euphoria, it seems to me that unit economics, if you're losing a ton and you're selling your X plus one unit and you're making a lot on that, but you're still losing a ton, it just seems like the concept gets taken a little bit too far. And I guess what I'm really asking is, you know, how did public markets miss and or how did like the momentum and trading mentality push a company like this to $60 billion of market cap, in your opinion? Yeah, well, I mean, Beyond Meat was also a $10 billion company. And there was a point in 2021 when Zoom, which we're not using here, by the way, but Zoom was a bigger company than ExxonMobil. So... You know, we always go through, on the one hand, it's always different in terms of the sectors that are in or out of focus or in vogue and the valuation methodologies. But just like the tech bubble and companies being valued on eyeballs, you know, unit economics or TAM, whatever you want to call it, it sort of was this cycle's iteration, I think, of that. And so I did spend a decent amount of work looking at speaking to various auto dealers, public and private dealers, guys who are invested in auto dealers that owns, you know, 100% of certain dealers and are the biggest shareholders in, in public auto dealer groups, just to kind of go through the economics of their networks and what the transportation costs were and how these guys might be doing it different because usually if you can't reconcile what a company's saying, whether it's unit economics or adjusted EBITDA or operating income adjusted adjusted to the financial statements, the rubber has to hit the road at some point. You're going to run into a problem at some point. Those have to reconcile. Yeah. And so there was a number of years where people said unit economics, unit economics, and on a consolidated basis, nothing was really getting better. And then in 2021, when you had auto retailers realizing the best margins that that industry has ever experienced, and now we're in the process of those coming down, you know, a thousand, two thousand basis points, we'll see. And auto lending had negative losses 
So if you were unfortunate enough to not be able to make your car payments and had to hand the keys back, or if you couldn't make your car payments, that's unfortunate. If you were then foolish enough to hand the car keys back because you would have been able to sell the car for more than kind of that outstanding loan balance was worth, that was also just completely unprecedented. And a company experiencing both the best lending and auto retail economics in the history of both industries barely made money in that environment, you say, okay, it's, if not now, when? It's done. So that helped as well. Pretty wild to think of used cars, the asset values being a strong secondary source of repayment, no matter what your LTV is on them. That's right. That's a good way to put it. That is a wild, wild world we lived in there for a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, markets will produce wild things over time, which is why you have to you always have to be humble and watching closely what your levels or your positions are, because it really is incredible to think, you know, when I started investing, I think my first investment was a pre-revenue biotech company with a $50 million equity value and $20 million cash in the bank, so a $30 million technology value. I didn't know any better because I was in my early 20s, but my comps and precedents, because, you know, I was in investment banking and that's what we do, you know, said it was a $250 million company. And at the time, you act with conviction because you say, okay, if it's $30 million is my downside, but $250 is what I think it could be worth. That's incredible asymmetry. I don't know to this point how much I was right versus lucky that the company ended up being bought by Roche for $192 million, kind of a year and a half after I made the investment. But, you know, if you think about it at the end of the day, this is IP. There's nothing here. What the economics will or might be or whether Roche developed the next uh, Avastin or Herceptin from that company or, or wrote the investment off to zero I'm not sure, but you know, it's one of those things that could go either way, could be binary. So I get why people might have looked at a Carvana and said, it is a good customer experience. The world is going online. You want to buy it. But if the founders really thought that it was a better mousetrap, I think the disclosures wouldn't have been as bad as they were. And the capitalization wouldn't have being such that, you know, it's on the verge of bankruptcy now and here today. So, you know, you always got to be careful in markets because they can do anything. But looking at the incentives and sort of where the money is flowing usually gives a pretty good indication of where they'll end up. I got plenty wrong. And uh, Lord knows I didn't sell everything in 2021. And I've taken plenty of pain. But one thing that I kept asking people that I would talk to is, no matter what the business was, right? At six, it, just taking a sixty billion dollar company, I just hear Buffett in in my ear saying, "Okay, that that should." How are, how are you going to do six billion of operating earnings? That's exactly right. And then, okay, now we're not we're not there yet. So, how big does your number have to be on the back end of this to justify the valuation and think it can compound at anything greater than you know, I don't know, two three percent or whatever? And even at that, you got to have a real big business. So. It's very interesting that I was not professional watching 2007. I experienced it, right? But not from a market perspective. So this is kind of the first bubble that I really watched. And it was wild to hear the arguments. And uh, I, think, I think I actually learned a lot from some of those arguments, but I'm glad that I didn't buy into a lot of them. Yeah, this is, I had a, uh, a mentor, someone that I worked with for a while that uh, put it well that, you know, in this business, you either stay humble or you will be humbled. Yeah. And every time you think you've seen something or you think you've seen figured it out, markets have a way of surprising you. So, I mean, it's good for those that love to learn and see new stuff, but everyone's humbled eventually. The thing I like about your first bet that you just described, the biotech company, is one, you know, you knew what you were doing. You might have gotten a little lucky. Uh, you might have been a little good. We don't know how to how to identify that. But even if it was a zero, given where you were in your younger career and your earnings potential, the bet was, I would say, asymmetric for multiple reasons, because you had a lot of earnings potential in front of you, too. I agree with that point. And it's fascinating to me how different people 
think about that. I was recently having a discussion with someone about investments that made sense for for their kids' college fund. And the way they put it was, well, you know, it's only the most safe, secure, low-risk things that we put in there, so we would never consider certain investments that are more volatile. And, you know, if you sit and you think about it and you say, okay, you have 15 years, if you take $1,000 and you're able to compound it at, you know, 15 to 25% for that 15 years, you know, you pay for half of that first year of college in the U.S., which is 40000 a lot more expensive than here in Canada, with that $1,000 initial investment. And so it's interesting to me always how people think about risk versus volatility and over a time horizon that seems to be different from my own. But to your point exactly, I think my biggest strength as an investor, because I'm certainly not smarter than the majority of market participants, was I was fortunate to start young, to start at at an early age. And even at that time, my mentality was always, you know, if I'm in my 20s or 30s or now, you know, late 30s, close to 40, I'm a lot younger than the executives that have real money on the line. And so I'm going to outlive them. My time horizon is longer than they are. So if you find people that are doing things for the right reasons or you can train yourself to think a little bit longer than the other guy, it shifts the odds in your favor for a lot of things I've found. Can we talk about the 11-year-old you as an investor? What were you looking at? (laughs) Well, so, you know, I I joke about that because uh, my first asset class was trading cards. Nice. That I bought and sold for a profit. I wouldn't learn that this was called arbitrage for another decade. (laughs) But, you know, at a young age, I was I was fortunate enough to discover what I loved. And I've sort of been doing it ever since. My dad was uh, an independent practice lawyer and his best friend from law school uh, who also had an MBA. So a law degree, business degree and ended up using uh, a little bit of both, but mostly neither Uh, was in the business of selling collectible coins and cards. And so my dad, who would usually work six or seven days a week, would sometimes take me in to the office on a Saturday and just sort of drop me off at his buddy's coin and card store to work slash play, or I guess work without getting paid or somewhat play for the day. And one of the activities was taking hockey and baseball cards out of the packages assembling complete sets and then kind of giving him any of the inserts or special cards, collectibles that he would sell independently. And so I sort of made a side business of that at around that time. I like that. Trading cards is one of my, I will never forget my grandfather. I traded, you know, it was like back in the early eighties. I traded like Daryl Strawberry, (laughs) like Gooden and a bunch of like really good guys. I traded them for a bunch of junk And I came home and my grandfather absolutely reamed me out. And he's like, you don't understand that the amount of stuff doesn't, that's not value, right? right? Like it's the quality of what you own. And that is a lesson that stuck with me. It's like one of those funny things how you can learn a really good life lesson through something, you know, as silly as kids' baseball cards. No, that's fantastic. And it's exactly right. Grandfather was a smart man. He was. He knew baseball well, and we used to watch it all the time. I'm sure when I showed him what I got, he was so, so mad. I mean, I know he was, but I, I, I bet he, he showed me a lot less than he was actually angry. So do you want to talk a little bit about your philosophy on the long side? I mean, we've mentioned asymmetry a couple of times, but curious to hear you talk about where you find it. And, uh, you know, you strike me as a guy that's really comfortable with people telling you, how can you own this? So I'd be curious to know what kind of longs generally you look for. And uh, you strike me as a real value guy. So you're not looking to the market for validation. Is that an accurate perception? I think it is. And I'll say that it's never as easy as it sounds. And there's definitely a lot of frustration and wondering, because I guess the way that I would put it is, it doesn't matter how good you are, how smart you think you are. The best investors get stuff wrong and they get it wrong 
often enough. And even so, sometimes you get things wrong. Okay, that's one category. Other times you get things right and the price moves against you, you know, 20, 50 plus percent. And then there's times where you don't know. You don't yet know if you got it wrong or if you're right and the price has moved against you. So this is why I say it is more art than science. It is kind of that intersection of economics and psychology. And so for me, I like kind of the puzzle aspect of it. And so Carvana was a great puzzle a couple of years ago. Dillard's was a phenomenal puzzle in terms of a reasonably run kind of dying brick and mortar retailer that refused to have quarterly calls, owned 90% of the real estate that was probably worth a multiple of where the enterprise was trading and was hoovering up shares probably because they knew that. And so, you know, piecing together the puzzles is always sort of interesting or I think my first real big investment was during the last financial crisis, the one that maybe you weren't watching as closely, I think you said, and that was a gold company of all things. So you can find things in any sector or asset class. And, you know, that was one just before the financial crisis, gold had sort of done reasonably well. Mining was hot. We live in Canada, so it's all kind of mining oil and gas or financials. And there was a company that was a billion dollar company in 07, decided to grow its production 50% from 200,000 ounces to 300,000 ounces a year and made the the short-sighted and long-term or hindsight or not, the short-sighted decision to finance that with $180 million of debt, most of it short-term. They had an operational hiccup because That's what happens in mining. You know, the best mines exist on paper and problems occur when you put a shovel in the ground. So they had an operational hiccup and then credit markets froze. And And then they had to roll the debt. Well, so the equity crashed. I mean, it was down 90 percent, but the commodity prices hadn't really changed. So this is sort of like imagine, you know, we'll go back to if Carvana was actually making the profits that an auto nation or Lithia was making but the equity was down 90% and all you had to do was convince yourself that Apollo didn't want to take over this enterprise, that would change things. So here, the gold price hadn't changed, the equity's down 90%, and if you convince yourself that the creditors want to roll the debt, that the banks don't want to take over the assets, well, you could pay off all the debt in a year and a half. And someone could have bought the whole enterprise for two times earnings. So I started picking away. And even then, it wasn't till a Russian steel company came in, bought 50% of the equity and guaranteed the debt that I made it a real position. Okay, that makes sense. Now, it still took another probably five or six years and learning the power of incentives as the Russians tried to squeeze out the minority shareholders and buy the asset for pennies on the dollar before the investment kind of was fully realized. But that's why having that long-term horizon is important in this business. How did you think about whether or not the creditors wanted to take over the asset? I actually had a similar investment in a company called Intrepid Potash. I think it was 2016. I know Intrepid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they were like on desk. Well, the market thought that they were on desk door, but I actually knew some of the bankers from my previous job. And I knew how the bank thought. So I actually had an insight there. You know, I obviously didn't call them or anything, but I was able to piece together. And then there was pension fund. And I was like, pension funds don't want to own these assets. They'd they'd rather roll the debt. But I've tried to figure out how would I look at a situation from the outside and make that a similar bet without having the pieces together like I had there. So I'm curious to hear you think about that. I think unless you have a specific insight, I would say generally you're right. You know, my experience working at banks and with bankers and corporate lawyers and all of the lenders and the pension funds is that for the most part, banks just want to get paid back on their loans and make a bit of a premium. 
they're not really in the business of taking over potash or gold mines or any of these things. So, yeah. you know, usually they will do what they can to get the company to term out the debt, to raise the equity they need to. They don't want to take over the assets. Now, that changes when you get guys like Apollo or kind of more the vulture funds involved. But, you know, it goes back to the incentives of the different people at the table always is hugely important. Yeah, that's exactly how I think about it. I also I have a, a theory and mostly it's because I, I was at BMO and uh, I know how they work and the, the groups that are focused on the cyclical industries are fantastic bankers. Like I, they understand that a cycle will come. They understand when they should step up. I think very highly of that group and that bank as a group of bankers. So I kind of wonder if you find bankers that are like Rabobank would be a bank that I would be pretty comfortable saying they're they're supportive. I just kind of wonder if you find like uh, bankers and verticals that are cyclical, whether or not the market kind of misses that sometimes. That would be my null hypothesis. Yeah, no, I, I think you you hit it right on the head there. You said it well. I mean, I don't know about certain banks. Uh, that's I can't speak to that, but certainly the cyclical bankers, M&A bankers, guys in real estate, because real estate is really just finance, tend to be pretty sharp, understand kind of the, the puts and takes. So, yeah, I have a, a lot of respect for them as well. But, you know, maybe I'm also just tooting my own horn as that was my background as well. Yeah, well, that's uh, maybe endowment bias on both of our parts. <laughs> Who knows? What did you think? was different. Like I'm always fascinated by what happened at Sears because the Dillard's and the Sears thesis rhyme at a very high level. What do you think made those different? Because Sears, it was always a real estate pitch, right? Yeah. There's a lot of differences between the two and how they manage the business and the decline. I guess what I would say is, you know, having your name on the door, having someone back in a corner that isn't willing to give up a fight for reputational, for legacy issues, it means a lot. And so this is, we're now on to the third generation of Dillard's and the second generation that are currently managing it, the CEO and the executive suite have been on the board for, you know, 50 years and their name is on every building. And if you go into I'm not going to go down the have you tried it, bro, line of arguing, but you do see when people, how people run a business, that they care really for the employees in this case and the retail operations and the profitability. They're not going to be swayed by, you know, I won't get into Sears just yet, but Kohl's as a great example this year has been, you know, the last few years, Kohl's has been a pretty good retailer. And they've done all of the things that public market participants would have asked or wanted them to do. You know, slim down the box sizes, done more of the store in store, done the Amazon drop off, the Sephora's kind of broadened the merchandise mix, gone more athletic allowed Under Armour to stuff the channels with them. We won't get into that either. Done a lot of things you would have wanted. But, you know, if you're not the same management team with the long-term focus and the skin in the game and your name on the building, then it's easy to maybe manage for the quarter or make decisions on inventory and operating procedures that you wouldn't otherwise. And so the nice thing about Dillard's was they said, okay, we're going to capitalize conservatively. It'll always be kind of two under three times leverage. We will focus on the retail operations because we don't think it's going away. We'll embrace omni-channel and web stuff, but we will do it slowly and try to make sure we're doing it with the economics or return on invested capital in mind. And because we know that our real estate is worth significantly more than the book value or on a liquidation basis, when we trade at a 10 to 20% free cash flow yield, buying back our shares is the best use of capital. So, you know, Sears ended up 
having a bit of the calls in terms of, you know, you had hired managers as opposed to long-term skin-in-the-game guys that made shorter-term decisions. And then you had a financial engineer kind of moving the pieces of paper that probably didn't help the enterprise as a whole. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what you're describing about Dillard's is what I've uh, I've always been somewhat drawn to Nordstrom's for somewhat similar reasons. I think uh, they found themselves in a little more more problems than I would have projected, but I, I think they're pretty good at what they do, and they clearly care. I think for similar reasons, right? Their name is on there, so I agree. Yeah, when you're relying on something like asset value, I'm just curious to hear how you're thinking about this. If Dillard's Right. The presumption against the real estate value is this is brick and mortar, brick and mortar is going away. Like, what's the actual value here? Are you thinking like, I'm going to look at precedent real estate transactions and I'll adjust the model each year as transactions occur? Or are you like stressing the asset value and saying, okay, where am I at this point? And, you know, who am I partnered with and how am I going to get the money out? Because at its core, if you're relying on asset values, the assumption is that the management team will eventually sell the asset and get you that value, right? Right. So it's a great question. It's exactly, I think, the right way to be thinking about it. And the answer I'll give you is you're doing the former to the best that you can, but ultimately it is the latter. It's the reliance because you don't have perfect information or even you know great information that the insiders of the company do, and you're not going to get it right. So, you know, as an example for Dillard's, wow, it's been a few years kind of since the 16, 17 annual meeting where, where I was actually present and had done the work. But, you know, to give an idea, I think, you know, of the, if it was 300 stores and they own 90% of the real estate, you're kind of saying, all right, if we go location by location, box by box, you can sort of tear it parse it out in terms of tier A, B, and C malls in terms of sales per square foot and kind of where the areas that they're located in. With Dillard's, it was nice because the top 100 locations or one-third of the assets probably gave you enough comfort to make up all of the asset value. It was kind of high productivity where if they got rid of it, you know, you could do a Nobu, you can do Dicks, you could easily double or triple the, the rent per square foot. And then on the downside, you say, OK, so what about the throwaways in flyover country in rural parts of the U.S. where the trading area changes and there just isn't value there? Well, they had some precedents where they had sold, uh, liquidated the asset and sold it and it had been redeveloped into call centers or churches or schools. And even there, when you would have thought it was kind of a bad outcome, they were recognizing a gain on, on kind of where the real estate was being held. So you're trying to triangulate it to the best you can, but you have to be careful on that asset value stuff. And it does come down to, it's a bit more of the art than science, I'll say again. Yeah. Well, it's nice to see them, you know, in the example that you mentioned, it's nice to see them monetize the tertiary assets and provide some support and at least let you know, hey, we're thinking about monetizing these assets should we ever need to. It's a good, good data point, right? That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm pretty sure they did as much in EPS as Ted Weschler paid for that entity uh, on a per share basis, which is uh, pretty yeah. interesting. And what an interesting win, too. It is, you know, it's funny how all these guys say, you know, it's time in the market, not timing the market. But the, the amazing thing is the guys who say it are really good at timing the market. Yeah. Buffett is, is very good. And, you know, one of my former mentors is, is the best I've seen at catching the inflection points. And there's certain trades you see over your lifetime that that really make you go, wow, you know, whether it's the Druckenmillers or Teppers that are very good for kind of catching the inflection. And I will say, it kind of pains me to say, I'm really happy for the Dillard's team because they're a phenomenal group there. They're good operators. They're doing the right things for the right reasons. They deserve all the success that they've recently had. Ted Wessler nailed that timing and call much better than I did. And maybe he had better information because of Saradage and because he's older and smarter. 
but I knew that that was mine to lose. And I, uh, I did not capture the upside on that one that I fully should have. So, so it's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. What do you think gives those guys the insight? I, I wonder if it's the time in the market gives them the insight. Like I had Bob Rabati on and he was talking about his biggest loser ever, which he ended up selling much higher and it went much higher. And that's why it was his biggest loser was opportunity cost. But through that process, the stock, I think it was down like 85 or 90%. And then he leaned in at the bottom. And I, I think, I mean, the story that I tell myself is if you follow things long enough, eventually you get served up an opportunity and it's the discipline to wait for true asymmetry. I, I don't know if that's reality or not. No, I think that it is. And, you know, there's a number of examples of that industry. Maybe the the John Paulson kind of greatest trade ever is the the best where you can be sitting around doing merger arbitrage with kind of lackluster uh, returns or results for a couple decades and then have one idea or trade that generates, you know, multi-generational wealth. So it really is about surviving 50 to 70 percent of the time, doing okay 10 to 15 percent of the time. And then if you can really crush it or knock the, the cover off the ball just a few times, it makes up for a lot, at least is, is how I've looked at it and sort of seen it through others as well. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I appreciate your time. Is there anything else you want to chat about? I'm happy to talk about anything, but uh, I've, I've enjoyed, I enjoyed very much your podcast with Brandon and I've enjoyed this conversation. So, you know, thank you very much. No, likewise. I appreciate you uh, giving me the chance. I don't really talk about positions that are in kind of the portfolio too much other than ones where I think I'm trying to help and protect people. But uh, these are interesting times. So I think the perspective, the good news I'll, I'll give to the listeners is I would imagine the next couple quarters might get a little choppy. But I would imagine the prospective returns from here are probably better than they've been for years. So, you know, stay focused, manage or continue having that long term sort of view. And you'll probably get some opportunities to have some real home runs in the next little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. A lot, I, I, too often people forget the lower everything goes, the higher the prospective returns are. That said, it usually goes up and down when the outlook changes, but the outlook was going to change even when everything looked rosy anyway. Exactly. That's exactly right. All right, man. Well, uh, you know, should you ever want to come on, hit me up. It's been really nice chatting with you. And uh, thank you very much for doing the episode. No, thanks, Bill. I appreciate it.